Oh, listen, uh, if you do need a Bible, though, we want to get one put in your hands as we get underway here. So uh, I believe we have a gentleman on either side who are poised and prepared. If you need a Bible, don't be shy about that. Uh, maybe one or two back there. And if you see if you're sitting by someone who doesn't have one and they're just embarrassed, just point them out. This guy needs a Bible. I know some of you follow along in your newfangled devices and all that. That's good, too. Well, again, uh, yeah, my name is Jeff. I am from Joplin. I'm pastor of the Calvary Chapel down there. Privileged to know Tom for quite a number of years. And like I say, it's always an honor uh, to when someone invites you to stand behind their pulpit. You know, it's something I don't take lightly, but it's like a double honor if you're ever invited back, you know. And so it's really cool that I get to be back. Uh, and today we're just going to take a peek into the, the first chapter. Well, I say a peek. We're going to look at the first chapter of the second epistle of Paul to the Thessalonians. So if you've got your Bible there, go ahead and make your way to second Thessalonians. We're going to look at all 12 verses of the first chapter today in a message that I've entitled uh, growing in faith, abounding in love. And so as you make your way there, let's uh, let's turn our hearts to the Lord Father, once again, it is it's, we are in awe of how you love us. And certainly we love you because you have first loved us and you demonstrated your love for us. And that while we were still sinners, Jesus, you died for us. And so now, Lord, I just pray that you would take our attention collectively captive, that we would have ears to hear you. God, we want to be challenged. We want to be changed. We want to be made like Jesus. And so uh, we just give this time to you and we ask these things in his name. Amen. Amen. Well, the church in Thessalonica was certainly an amazing church. Uh, as you read through the brief letters that Paul penned to them, you'll see that they simply seem to excel in every essential way. I mean, their faith was growing. Their love was abounding. But in some ways, they were struggling, birthed under difficult circumstances. If you go back and read through the book of Acts, you'll discover Paul, along with Silas and Timothy, entered the city of Thessalonica. And as they shared the message of the gospel, there was nothing short of a tremendous response. Acts chapter 17 records for us that a, a great multitude of people were saved. However, as one might anticipate, it seemed to follow Paul along no sooner than the people were being saved. The work was being brought under the incredible pressures of persecution, so much so that it would seem as though Paul was only able to stay there with them for a few weeks before he was driven out of town. And so as one might imagine, that left a burden upon the apostles heart for how they were faring, how they were doing, how they were growing. And so there he was, he had made his way through Berea and on down and around to Athens and over to Corinth. And so he sent Timothy to check on them. And when Timothy returned, he told Paul of how they were truly excelling, how they were just loving God, loving Paul, grateful for his work among them. But evidently they had a few questions for him. And so Paul sat down and penned. Possibly his very first letter, maybe his second. There's a little debate there, a little, uh, you know, not a little uncertainty as to which one exactly was first. But uh, first Thessalonians was either his first or second epistle. 
But evidently, by the time that that letter uh, was delivered to them or sometime thereabout, there was both a false report and a forged letter. Paul references it in the second chapter of this epistle circulating claiming to be by Paul's hand, and it had stirred up some confusion, and understandably so. Because when Paul was with them, we discover as we read through these first couple of letters that he had spoken in detail to them about this time of Jacob's trouble that the Bible refers to prophetically. Uh, The day of the Lord, the great tribulation. And because the persecution against them was becoming so intense and they seemingly had some letter claiming to be from Paul touching on the topic, they were wondering if perhaps they were actually going through or were in the midst of the throes of the great tribulation that precedes the second coming of Christ. And so it would seem that when the carrier of the first letter returned to Paul with these problems, Paul sat down and penned this letter to clarify their understanding, to dispel any confusion. So here in chapter one, Paul works to correct their views, to bring proper perspective to persecution. Now, if you want just a quick outline for the there's only three chapters in this book. The first chapter, he corrects their views on persecution. The second chapter, he corrects their views on prophecy. And in the third chapter, he corrects their views on their day to day practice. Okay, but what we're looking at here is in chapter one, uh, his correcting their perspective on persecution. And then under that heading is a little subheading where he gives them or offers them praise a promise and prayer. Okay, so we're all there together. Let's turn our attention to the first verse where we read Paul Silvanus. Now, Silvanus is Silas. He's the same Silas that was with him in Thessalonica and Timothy. These are three guys that they were all familiar with. Uh, And to the church of the Thessalonians in God, our father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace from God, our father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, We can certainly highlight a few things here in these first two verses. I just want to draw your attention to the fact, something that no doubt Pastor Tom has taught many, many times, and that is that grace and peace, they go together. And it's by receiving the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ that we experience, first of all, peace with God, and then ultimately we receive and come to know the peace of God. That is, you're no longer at war with God through sin and rebellion. You've made peace with God through the blood of the cross of Jesus Christ who has loved you and has washed you from your sins in his own blood. True peace, you guys, I'm talking about peace for your soul, comes from God alone. It doesn't come through the counsel of psychology. It doesn't come through the mechanisms of psychiatry. Oh, you may learn, you know, some uh, or acquire some means of coping. And that's fine and well. But true peace flows from a supernatural source, even God, our father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, when you read the words, God, our father and the Lord Jesus Christ, I don't want you to envision them as though Paul is going from God, our father and the Lord Jesus Christ, as though one is under the other or subservient in respect to glory and deity. But in reality, it's more like God, our father 
and the Lord Jesus Christ being equal in divinity and glory, being the fountain from which all peace and grace flows. Are you following me? Okay. look at verse three. He says, we are bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as it is fitting, because your faith grows exceedingly. And the love of every one of you all abounds toward each other so that we ourselves boast of you among the churches of God for your patience and faith in all your persecutions and tribulations that you endure. Guys, look back at verse three. If you're kind of an underliner or a note taker, you might want to draw some attention to the very first phrase. He says, we are bound To thank God always for you. And he goes on and he tells him it's fitting. It's appropriate because of what God is doing in you. Listen, it's not only prayer that will change people or that will help people endure or do the right thing. Praise will as well. Guys, having someone in your corner, someone on your side who will believe in you. Who will not give up on you, but they will offer of offer words of encouragement and commendation to you can make all the difference in someone going the distance or falling short. Um, Giving up. Giving in, calling it quits as people. And I would just, hey, I got a quick, quick question for you. Time for transparency by show of hands now. How many of you have ever gone through a tough time? Come on, somebody. That's an every hand in the building kind of a response, isn't it? Because as people, we go through tough times and it's easy to want to throw in the towel to say, you know what? Forget it. It's not worth it. What's the point really in continuing on in it? But if someone would come along and say, hey, man, you got this. Hey, man, trust in the Lord. Finish well. Keep going. Don't give up. Don't give in. You're doing awesome. Guys, it can make all the difference. The Bible says in the book of Proverbs, the 15th chapter, a wholesome tongue is a tree of life, but perverseness in it breaks the spirit. You know, every now and then I trust that because human nature is relatively the same, that we all kind of come into contact with the same kinds of people throughout our uh, journey through life. And every now and then you'll run across the person. And I'm not going to ask for a show of hands on this one in case that person's close to you. Um, guys, we can laugh. Eh? I just maybe. But every now and then, you know, you run across that person who always knows how to make every situation difficult. You know what I'm saying? It's like they point out every complexity, every potential problem they see. It's like by the time they're finished encouraging you, you don't even want you just you don't even want to do it now. You know, it's like they just it breaks the spirit. It leaves you saying, well, I guess it then obviously you see what I don't I guess it'll never work. I mean, I shouldn't even why even bother. Right. But a wholesome tongue is a tree of life, encourages you to grow, to stick to it, to see it through, to watch God work despite the difficulties. Again, Proverbs 15 and verse 23, a man has joy by the answer of his mouth. 
and a word spoken in due season, how good it is. Guys, here's the takeaway. Make it your aim to be a person of encouragement. Haven't we discovered that discouragement is around every corner? Hey, how many of you know discouragement's around every corner, right? We'll be the exception. Let's not focus on the impossibility. That's why I try to tell people that are around me. It's like, look, I don't want to hear about the impossibility. I don't want to hear how we can't. I want to hear about how God can. I want to, I want to glorify God for the opportunity, not focus on the impossibility, you see. Paul says, we thank God for you. And we're bound to. He's like, man, I just, I have to. The idea is that, man, I owe God a debt of gratitude for everything that he's doing, how he's working in your midst, you see. And he highlights three things specifically, if you're following along with me. Number one, a growing faith. He says, I'm bound to thank God. Why? Because your faith grows, well, the word is exceedingly. And guys, let's remember that these attributes are being developed in the midst of intense persecution. It's in these tough times. It's in these trials. It's in these tribulations. And they're not abandoning God. They're not giving up on God. They're not slinging around sayings like, well, God, if you really loved me, you wouldn't allow these things to happen to me and all of that. But rather than walking away from the Lord, what we discover is that they're leaning more heavily into the Lord. They're leaning more heavily upon the Lord. They're drawing their strength from the Lord. Translation, their faith is growing. Now, guys, we understand, don't we, that faith is ignited in the hearing of the gospel. But we need to understand that faith is not simply a static substance, but rather it's intended to grow. And here's the thing. A growing faith is indicative of a growing Christian. Okay, and listen, family, the Bible is replete. It is filled with examples of Growing or, or that, that illuminate or that demonstrate the fingerprints of a growing faith. I mean, how many of you realize that great men of faith never start as great men of faith? But rather their faith grows as God intends it to. And we could journey all the way back, couldn't we? To the father of faith himself, who would be top ten answers on the board survey says Abraham. Ding, ding, ding. Number one on the board. Abraham, there he was, living in a pagan land, didn't know God, had never heard the voice of God. God comes to him, speaks to him, calls him out of this pagan land. His faith was ignited in the hearing of the word of God. And you all know the story. And if, if you don't, let me challenge you. Journey back to the book of Genesis and, and read it. It's fascinating. It'll encourage you. Uh, but God promises him a son. But here's the kicker. He's 75 years old. Anyone in here 75 or, or older? Anybody? Couple, one, two. Yeah, you, how would you like a new baby? <laughs> you know? But, but Abraham, he, this, is what, this is what he wanted, man. He was, he was like, this was, this was going to be incredible. He wanted an heir 75 years old. But did God immediately give him a son? No. 
Guys, it would be decades later before he has said son. Then years after that, God says, I want you to take now your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. And I want you to take him to the land of Moriah. And I want you to offer him there as a burnt offering to me. How many of you realize when God said that to Abraham, like Abraham didn't understand. He didn't understand what was going on. Or why this would be something that would be entering into the equation of his life. God had promised him a nation through this son. Salvation to the ends of the earth. And yet now God is asking him to offer him as a burnt offering. But as you know, he honored God's word. He obeyed God's instruction and God honored his faith and forbade him from offering his son. And of course, this would be a picture, wouldn't it? God was painting a picture for you and me of God who would take his only son whom he loves and offer him as a sacrifice for us. And as to where Abraham would be stopped, Jesus would be sacrificed for the sin of the world. But the lesson is in this, that a growing faith will not forsake God, but rather will continue to follow after God, even when it doesn't understand. God, I don't understand, but I trust you and I'm going to follow after you come what may. We could go back and think about Gideon. You know, his journey began in in timidity. On a threshing floor in a valley, trying to stay off the enemy's radar, right? That's where we find him. That's where the angel catches up to him and says, hey, mighty man of valor. Gideon's all like, you talking to me? You know, because he's down in the valley. Well, listen, when you're threshing wheat or barley or whatever the grain may be, how many of you realize the wind whips up and blows off the the high part. It blows off the hill. Threshing floors typically, traditionally, are on the top of the hill. Well, this mighty man of valor is down in the valley. Right? He's just trying to make it work. And this angel begins to speak to him and and says, you know what? Um, God's got a plan for you. He wants to use you. And, And long story short, God calls him to uh, lead the army of Israel against insurmountable odds, right? And, and he's, he's, look, this great man of faith, here he is, he's like, I don't know, man, is that really God? I don't know, I'm going to take the fleece, I'm going to say, God, if it's you, then I want the fleece wet, the ground dry. Okay, no, 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 no. let's change that. I want the ground, the, the ground wet. What did I say? I don't even remember. We wanted the fleece dry, the ground wet, he got it. Then he wanted the ground dry, the fleece wet, he got it, or vice versa, right? And so he's like, okay, okay. So he does his part. He assembles the armies of Israel. And there he is. He's got about 32,000 men. Guys, that's a formidable size group, wouldn't you think? 32,000 men. And so he sets up and he goes out and he begins to survey the camp of the Amalekites, the Midianites. And uh, he begins to get a little, you know, like some second thoughts. Because he's looking out over them and they're so vast. The army is so vast, the Bible says that as he surveyed even their camels, that their camels looked like grains of sand on the seashore because they were so vast in number. And he's going, my goodness, 135,000 is the approximate number of Midianites and Amalekites that were there. 
that God was calling him with his 32,000. You know, we don't have camels, you know, uh, we don't have anything like that. You know, no, no horses. We're riding and there's 32,000 of us, but there's 135,000 of them. And they've got camels, the sand of the seashore and this and that. And and Gideon's like, you know, God, uh, I got to be honest, I don't like these odds, you know, God's like, you know what, Gideon, you're right. I, I don't either. You have too many. You know, Gideon's like, oh, my goodness. And so he's like, here's what I want you to do. I just just here's what I want you to do, Gideon. I want you to go. I want to give you like the give your men the the right of first refusal, so to speak. He's like, if they don't want to fight, if they're scared to fight, just tell them they can go home. And so Gideon's like, all right. And he he goes and because, you know, Gideon's kind of like he's freaking out, but he's supposed to be their leader. How do you think they all feel? Right. And so he's like, hey, guys, I got I just want to I got some good news. I got bad, news, good news. You know, I, uh, here's the thing. If any of you are having second thoughts, reservations, hesitations, if you're afraid, you can go. Twenty two thousand of them pack their bags and go. <laughs> Gideon's, you know, he's just like, oh, my God, these odds, I don't like them. God's like, yeah, I don't either, Gideon. You still have too many. And you know the story, right? I'm kind of dragging it out. I need to get going. But ultimately, God whittles it down to 300 men. 450 to 1. And God is asking Gideon to trust him against all odds. Here's the the point. A growing faith is willing to take risk. When's the last time you took a risk for God? You placed your hand to something so seemingly impossible, so insurmountable, that if God wasn't in it, it was doomed to fail. Now, maybe God hasn't called you to that path personally, at least yet in your walk with him. You see, I don't know. But the point is, it remains Don't be afraid to trust an unlimited God for impossible things. Is there anything too hard for me, says the Lord? If he's brought you to it, it's because he's going to do it. And he'll see you through it. We could speak of David and Goliath. What's the lesson there? That a growing faith believes God to overcome our biggest obstacles. David anchored himself in God's past faithfulness. He had killed the lion. He had killed the bear with a sling and a stone. He's like, God has never failed me before. Why would I begin to think he's going to fail me now? There's no reason for there's no rationale to believe that God will ever let me down. If he's never if God has ever never let you down before, why do you think he will let you down now? You see, we could talk about, you know, Peter. His life, amongst other things, teaches us that a growing faith will rebound after failure. And rather than being beat down by past failure, there will be a boldness, right? Acts chapter 2, to share, to do God's will, to share God's word, to uh, proclaim the incredible truth of his restoration, his reconciliation, his salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And of course, the Apostle Paul, the man writing this letter, encouraging them how their faith is growing His life demonstrates, it illuminates that a growing faith is willing to sacrifice. It's willing to suffer 
for the glory of God. A growing faith will endure because it sees things in the light of eternity. A growing faith maintains the eternal perspective. Question. How's your faith? Let's circle back, right? We know that faith is not meant to be a static substance. In fact, it cannot be. It is either growing or it's diminishing. The faith of the Thessalonians was growing radically. I mean, the word Paul uses is exceedingly. And their love was abounding, overflowing. Listen, a genuine faith toward God will be always accompanied by love toward others. Are you with me? Faith. We might say that as our faith grows upward, our love grows outward. You know, sometimes we read these letters and we think, wow, you know, what an incredible, what an incredible testimony or what an incredible truth. What, how radical it must have been, you know, and, and, and we just think, wouldn't it be great if this is how it was for us? Faith abounding. Love overflowing. But guys, we forget that biblical love isn't simply this intangible, ethereal emotion that flows up out of the mysterious somewhere to somehow energize our emotional state. Biblical love is a decision that I make. Biblical love is verb, not noun. It's not a feeling. It's not an emotion. It's not something I feel. It's it's something I do. Jesus said this. He said, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another as I have loved you. There was a demonstration, right? There was an example that he gave. There was something that he did. And he said, as I have loved you, so you also love one another. And by this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Now, stay with me. Romans chapter 5. You can write it down. You can read it later. But Paul there tells us that the love of God. Right, we're talking about abounding love, growing love. Jesus said they're going to know you're my disciples like I've loved you. You should love one another. Now, Paul tells us that the love of God has been poured out. Okay, now more literally gushed into. You think about there Jesus was right uh, at the feast and he says, he, he just yells out, if any man thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And I'm telling you that out of his heart will flow rivers of living waters, right? For, and in reality, we know that it's even stronger than that. He's saying that uh, from within you will, will flow torrents of living, it will gush forth, right? Not like a trickle. Out of you will trickle living waters. No, it's none of that. We're talking Grand Rapids, right? It will gush. Well, Paul says the love of God has been gushed into our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Think about that. It's there. Guys, it's there. All we have to do is walk in it. 
be about, you know, there, there's a phrase that we kick around that I kick around with with some people when maybe they're telling you their dreams or their aspirations or their goals or what they want to do, the way they want to live. And, and, you know, what we say, hey, let's not talk about it. Let's be about it. Right. There comes a point where it's like we're, we're not just going to talk about it. We're going to be about it. And when it comes to the love of God, guys, this is what it this is. This is the kind of the take home. We don't just talk about it. We need to be about it. But here's the thing. It's not pick and choose. We don't love those whom we feel like we love one another. There's no exception in which of our brothers or sisters that we choose to love or not to love. We love one another. It's what we do. What a great goal to have said of Calvary Chapel Springfield, right? Your faith is growing. Your love is abounding. However, the church in Thessalonica had still one more commendation, patience and faith in all your persecutions and tribulations, which you endure. It's been said that a faith that can't be tested can't be trusted. And as a believer, you can expect your faith to be tried. In one respect, it's how God demonstrates to you and to others the genuine nature of your faith and the genuine nature of your decision to follow him. You don't get going when the going gets tough. You anchor to him. You stay uh, you know, dependent upon him. The Thessalonians had resolved that come what may, they would trust in the Lord. They would continue to follow after the Lord. And here they are in all this persecution, this tribulation. Now it's on display for all to see. It's not just lip service. It's, it's life service. They're, they're doing it, you see. And this patience and faith isn't just a passive resignation that just says, well, okay, sirrah, sirrah, you know, whatever will be, will be. Life has just brought this to me. I guess I've just got to sit here and endure. No, there's a hope in it that's intermingled in this as a seeing of what others mean for evil, that God will take it and turn it for good. There's a kind of a. A Romans 8.28 atmosphere about this patience and faith. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God. And to those who are the called according to his purpose. Let me question. Do you love God? Come on now. Thank you. Yeah. Well, then you know that whatever's happening is going to work out for your growth and for his glory eternally. Right? You see, you and me, we're prone to think that suffering proves that God doesn't care. What Paul puts forth is just the opposite. That he's growing you. That he's purifying me. That he's preparing us for the kingdom that awaits us. Notice, now Paul has just pointed out all their endurance and their persecution and their tribulation. And now in verse five, he says, which is manifest evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you also suffer, since it is a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you and to give you who are troubled rest when uh, with us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. Come on, somebody say amen to that. <laughs> you know, we want God to deliver us. But God wants to develop us. Guys, what Paul is communicating here is that suffering 
because you're a believer. It's not a burden. Biblically. It's a blessing and a privilege. Now, I want to say this. If you're suffering because of some bad decision or stupid decision, right, that you've made. That's on you. That's on me. Right. I make a bad decision. The ramifications find me. I can't I can't go into the poor as me. That was that one's on me. But if God entrusts you with suffering. Well, from the eternal perspective, hey, you're blessed. Speaking to the Philippians in light of their persecution in Philippians chapter one, verse 28 and 29, Paul said it like this. He said, and not in any way terrified by your adversaries, which is to them a proof of perdition, but to you notice of salvation and that from God, for it has been granted. Oh, there's our word gifted. It has been gifted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his name's sake. Wow. That's revolutionary. You think about that. You realize that Jesus has it for some of you. Jesus has a gift. But it's not going to be a, a creature comfort. It's not going to be perhaps the pay raise. You understand? Listen, Paul is saying the fact that you're being put down and persecuted is proof that you're part of the kingdom. Manifest evidence is the way he puts it of the righteous judgment of God that you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God. Now, the word worthy doesn't describe merit. It's not like, okay, you finally suffered enough. You've really earned your place here now. No, it's not that. It speaks of being made fit. In other words, God fits us for glory eternally through our suffering presently. Again, if you're a note taker, just write these down. You can read them or review them later. Okay, it's first Peter chapter four, verses 12 through 14. Okay. And as long as you're in first Peter, write down chapter five and verse one. Look at Romans chapter eight and verse 18. Look at second Corinthians chapter four, verses 16 and 17. Suffering and glory cannot be separated. And now, listen, suffering for Christ uh, won't make a man, but it will reveal what a man is made of. Is their faith genuine? Is their confession true? Listen, times of testing reveal what's in us. Now, from the persecutor's perspective, they're punishing us. From God's perspective, he's purifying us. Guys, remember this. Ultimately, presently, okay, in this world, it is not your happiness that God has as his chief aim. God's chief aim isn't to make you or me happy. It's to make you and me holy. Okay, and um, far from being absent from us in our times of suffering, which is what we tend to think God is at work in us. And at the risk of redundancy, we tend to see God's goodness in terms of our being pampered. But God sees it in terms of our being purified. Okay, 
But not only is God's righteous judgment made manifest in demonstrating your worthiness, your fitness for his kingdom through the trouble that's placed on you. The fact that you don't get going when the going gets tough, you know, that you've clung to the cross, you depend on the Lord and you're trusting in the Lord. Uh, It's also, he says, uh, manifested in punishing those who persecute you. It's a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you. You know, many people believe that God's love and God's judgment are kind of uh, they're they're How do you say at odds with one another? Uh, They are contradictory in nature, but they forget that not only is God love, but God is also righteous. He is just. And as such, he will repay all evil. And guys, what Paul is heading toward here is that all evil will be judged. Ultimately, it will be accounted for either at the cross or in hell. Okay? Think it through. Could God be truly righteous if he didn't judge or repay evil? He would be unrighteous if he didn't punish evil. Guys, imagine what you would think of the judge who shrugged off the murderer or the rapist or the molester did nothing to balance the scales of justice. He ripped you off. He ruined your credit. He stole from your house, whatever the case may be, you know, and now there you are. You're standing before the judge, the guy, the perp just walks. You would think, my goodness, you, you would be beside yourself with disbelief, with the corruption and the injustice of the judge. Well, how much more then is it a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulation those who do evil? And to give you who are troubled rest when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. Amen. How many of you looking forward to that rest? Come on, somebody. Amen. Now, look at verse eight. He says he's going to return to judge. Notice in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. These shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power when he comes in that day to be glorified in his saints and to be admired among all those who believe because our testimony among you was believed. And this, ladies and gentlemen, is why there is such urgency, such importance, you see, imposed upon you and me to get the gospel message out To mankind, because hell is both real and listen, it's forever. And when you hear the word vengeance, I don't want you to think of revenge, you know, like God's God's going to get them back. It's, It's more along the lines of just it just means meeting out justice. Nothing more. Nothing less. And who is it who will be subjected to the righteous judgment of God? Is it limited to the Hitlers, the uh, Osama bin Ladens, the uh, mass murderers, the uh, ruthless oppressors? No, no, no. All will be subject, notice, who do not know God and who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
Jesus said, and this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. And, he says, those who do not obey the gospel, that is, they refuse to believe upon Jesus Christ, whom he has sent. Remember John chapter 6, what, what good work should we do that we might work the works of God? They were saying, what do we need to do to be saved? And Jesus said, this is the work of God that you believe on him whom he has sent. God doesn't preordain people to hell. People make a choice to reject Jesus Christ, whom he has sent. God, God made the escape route. Okay. He says, these shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. Now, when you read the word destruction, I don't want you to think of annihilation. You know, there is a false doctrine out there, the doctrine of annihilationism, where uh, they purport that uh, when someone who uh, dies, if they go to hell, that they are there uh, for a certain amount of time, whatever the time may be, depending upon the gravity of their sin. Maybe it's a thousand years, maybe it's a trillion years. I don't know. That part's subjective, you see. But ultimately, they just disappear. They just burn out. They just they just cease to exist. Well, wouldn't that be a wouldn't that just be a message of some sort of morbid hope if that were true? But the truth is, the Bible doesn't teach that at all. So don't think of annihilation. Think of ruination. Those those who reject Jesus Christ will experience everlasting ruin. That is, they will suffer the loss of all things that make existing worthwhile. You know, it, I, I was watching a fella one time. Uh, on a little Facebook video, and he was talking to someone. They were famous people. And, and he said, you know, may we have as much fun in hell as we had getting there. And I just thought, you know how sad. What a, what a deceived state of mind, as though there's just going to be a giant rock concert forever, people partying and, and, and doing all these things, uh, de- debasing themselves and all. It's, no, no. Absolute isolation, absolute, you know, but listen, guys, it says inflaming fire, but I don't want you to think that it's the fire. Now, that's bad. That's really bad. I don't want to minimize or somehow uh, diminish the reality of what that is. But the fire in and of itself is not what makes hell what it is. Guys, go back, write it down, read it later. Daniel chapter three, the three Hebrew boys, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, there they were thrown in the fiery furnace, heated up seven times hotter. Well, they did fine. So long as the Lord was with them. Right. What truly characterizes hell is this phrase from the presence of the Lord and from the presence of his power. Hell will be completely devoid of God in every aspect of his character, with the exception of one. And that is his unrelenting, holy justice. Listen, as uncomfortable as it may be to talk about, guys, we cannot be moved from the idea that the punishment of the wicked is everlasting. Even as the blessings of heaven are eternal, so is the penalty of hell. A few last scripture references for you. Isaiah 66, 24. Matthew 18, 8. Mark chapter 9, verses 43 through 48. And Revelation chapter 20 and verse 10. Infinite isolation in darkness forever. Loneliness, emptiness, and pain. Here's here's what I'm trying to say. 
How can we stay silent and not share the gospel? Think about that. But in you, he will be glorified because you have believed the message of the gospel. Guys, it's truly that simple. The difference between salvation and condemnation can essentially be boiled down to this single word, believed. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. It changes everything. So Paul has given them praise. He's like, man, I thank God for you. You're growing in faith. You're bounding in love. He's given them a promise. God sees what's going on with you. It's not it's you know, he's purifying you, but he will also take care of you. And there is a rest coming for you and a repayment for those who trouble you. Now he offers for them prayer. Let's look at our final couple verses. Therefore, we also pray always for you. That our God would count you worthy of this calling and fulfill all the good pleasure of his goodness and the work of faith with power. That the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. They were going through those tough times, the pressure of persecution, and Paul was praying for them. Again, I would say this to you, even as I've encouraged you to be a person of praise, to be a person of encouragement, be a person of prayer and let people know, look, when people are going through tough times, it helps to know people are praying for you. Don't be shy to, to, to share that with someone. Hey, listen, I'm praying for you. It, could, it really makes a difference. Paul was praying that the power of God would be on display in their lives. That they would fulfill all the good pleasure of his goodness and the work of faith with power. To the Philippians, he said it like this. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to do for his good pleasure. And ultimately, you guys, and we'll close with this eternally, is that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ might be glorified in you. Now, that doesn't mean that, you know, you just you just. Put on a shirt and the name Jesus Christ is on it. And look, I'm he's glory. You know, the name of Jesus Christ is on me. You know, no, he's talking about all that he is, all that Jesus is, his character, all that he stands for, all that he emulates. May it be on display through you. May it be a reality in you, but not through, you know, he's not putting this weird pressure on you, right? Like, I've got to, gosh, I, I got to pull this off. No, he says, it's not through your strength or by my resolve, but according to or through the means of. So how am I supposed to glorify Jesus? Through the means of the grace of our God. And the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. God, we just want to say thanks. We want to thank you for the richness of your word and for the ready reminder to maintain, God, that eternal perspective. God, we go through these tough times and even as a country, we're just seeming in this, this turmoil, this turbulence, such divide. And Lord, may we maintain the eternal perspective. We realize, Lord, that it doesn't change our mission objective at all to share you with the world, to show you to the world. And to bring you glory. And so may we be those whose faith is growing. Whose love is abounding. That we might fulfill all the good pleasure of your goodness. And the work of faith with power. 
and that Jesus might be glorified in our lives. And guys, I would just say while we're in this kind of this prayer position, the Bible is clear that the wages of sin is death. But the penalty for sin, uh, the penalty uh, for sin is eternal separation from the presence of the Lord and everlasting ruination. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And that includes you. And I don't know, maybe everyone here knows the Lord. You're walking closely with the Lord. I think that's great. But if not. I encourage you. To call upon Him today. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Find forgiveness of sin and new life in Him. And Father, I just pray that Your Word would now take root in our hearts. And bring forth fruit in our lives. That You might be glorified. And we'll give You praise in Jesus' name. Amen.